Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on. Episode 63 of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. The big news stories this week are focused on fraud and bribery and anti-corruption, but there are other bits across all areas of financial crime and the usual roundup of cyber attack news. As usual, I've flagged the links to the main stories in the podcast description. We'll start with financial sanctions. This week, the sanctions roundup is limited to the United Kingdom, where the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation has announced that following the nationalisation of Gazprom Germania, or Germania, its UK subsidiaries are no longer subject to the credit restrictions introduced by the Russia Sanctions EU Exit Amendment Number 15, Regulations 2022. The general licence which was in place has been revoked because it was thought no longer necessary. Link to the comprehensive list of off-sea licences is in the podcast description. The other news from Offsea is that there is an update to the oil price cap guidance. The update provides clarity on the following. Wind-down periods, so it's confirming that Offsea will introduce a 45-day wind-down period for any future changes to the oil price cap. Trading in derivatives and futures is now exempt from the oil price cap. And a definition of as soon as reasonably practicable has been provided, or at least clarification has been provided as to what that might mean in the event of a, a suspected breach. Updated guidance can be found in the podcast description. That's it for sanctions. Now to a bit of fraud news. This week's fraud news offers a bit of a churn of stories which have been trailed for some time. Before we get to those stories, we'll start in the United States with an old friend, and then a warning. First, the United States Department of Justice, the DOJ, has announced that two individuals have pleaded guilty to COVID-19 loan fraud, claiming around $770,000 in business loans under the Paycheck Protection Program and the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program. These stories remain painfully regular as governments around the world seek to make those who abused the various schemes in place to counter the negative impact on the economy of COVID-19, well, they're looking to make those people, continuing to make those people accountable for their wrongdoing. The second story comes in the way of a warning from the DOJ, where the Office of Justice Programs uh, for Victims of Crime, the OVC, has reported that individuals uh, claim to have had contact from the OVC when, in fact, it was all part of an impersonation scam. Impersonation scams are not uncommon and frequently involve the fraudsters using typically trusted businesses or government agencies, as here, to convince the victim of their status. The link to the warning can be found in the podcast description. Now, before I turn to a good deal of news from the UK this week, a quick story out of the European Intellectual Property Office, which has published its Intellectual Property Perception Study for 2023. The study, which involved 25,824 interviews, is just over two weeks from the end, uh, over just over, over over two weeks from the end of January to mid-February 2023, 
was conducted with EU residents who are over 15 years of age, and it provides some illustrative data on perceptions of IP and the abuse of intellectual property rights which are owned by others. While generally the results were positive and that the majority understood the importance of IP integrity, on counterfeiting it was said a third of Europeans find it acceptable to buy counterfeit goods if the price of the genuine product is too high. The figure rises to half among younger people. 39% of Europeans have wondered whether something they have bought is a real product or a fake. And 13% of Europeans report having bought counterfeits intentionally in the last 12 months. The figure goes up to 26%, so just over a quarter, for those aged 15 to 24. On piracy, the data is equally interesting. 80% say that they prefer to use legal sources to access online content if an affordable option is available. More than 4 in 10 Europeans, 43% in fact, have paid to access, download or stream copyright protected content from a legal service in the past year. Europeans also show uncertainty about the legality of the sources they use for online content with 40%, 41%, wondering whether a source accessed was legal or not. A large majority of people, 65%, consider it acceptable to pirate when content is not available on their subscription. 14% of Europeans admit to having intentionally accessed content via illegal sources in the last 12 months, and 33% of young people uh, is the figure for those aged 20, uh, 15 to 24. 82% of Europeans agree that obtaining digital content through illegal sources entails a risk of harmful practices. Now the data is revealing in attitudes to IP, especially where the cost becomes a sensitive matter. And I can't help but wonder, during an acute cost of living period in our history, whether these figures might show a decline for respect in IP rights come 2024. The link to the press release, which contains links to the full report, some glamorous infographics and video, can be found in the podcast description. To the UK now, where once more there's been a rehearsal of the news that Meta, which owns Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp, should act now to protect customers who are exposed to fraud, which is estimated to be £250 million this year. The warning comes from TSB, the UK bank, which has issued similar warnings before and which we reported in earlier episodes of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. Indeed, Meta has come in for criticisms for the scale of fraud committed via its platforms, as I reported as far back as episodes 4 and 9, with warnings from both the Advertising Standards Authority and the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK. Indeed, as recently as two weeks ago, Lloyds Banking Group name-checked Facebook and Instagram for the same reasons, pretty much, as I reported in episode 61. There was also a report by UK Finance, again, which I reported in episode 58, which highlighted the problem of fraud on social media. In light of this, maybe it's time to do something about it. There certainly is a lot of momentum. I've covered the stories which have addressed this over the last 18 months, 18 months, 15 months or so. So perhaps it is time to do something about it. And maybe, maybe Meta could show some goodwill here, stop sitting on its hands and do something a bit more active than it has been doing.
Anyway, we'll stick with the UK, where the big news this week is the announcement from the government that it plans to reform the identification doctrine. The identification doctrine is the means by which companies are held criminally liable for crimes it commits. But because a company is a legal construct and not capable of forming its own mind, a directing mind and will at senior level generally has to be found for liability to stick to the corporation. However, the more complex and devolved a company, the more difficult it can be to find that directing mind and will. As the press release provides, a test will be applied to consider the decision-making power of the senior manager who's committed an economic crime, rather than just their job title. The corporation may then be liable in its own right. This will reduce the ability for corporations to use complex management structures to conceal who decision-makers are and therefore level the playing field for businesses of all sizes. The reform, allied to the new failure to prevent fraud offence in the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill, is a step in the right direction and, together, these reforms are likely to alleviate some of the difficulties associated with corporate liability. The link to the latest version of the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill, which is currently in the House of Lords on its parliamentary journal, is in the podcast description. Now that's it for fraud this week. Now to bribery and anti-corruption. This week's bribery and anti-corruption news starts in Nigeria, where the day after he announced that poverty and unemployment were no excuse for computer-related frauds, Abdul Rashid Bawa, who is the executive chairman of the Economic and Financial Crimes Commission, was suspended by the Nigerian president, Bola Ahmed Tinubu, amid allegations that Bawa had engaged in corrupt abuse of office. He's been questioned and the investigation continues. To Ukraine now, which is continuing its battle against Russians to the south and east, as well as corruption closer to home. First, a judge, Mikola Chaus, a former judge in the Dnipro District Court, has been imprisoned for 10 years following conviction for bribery. Chaus is said to have taken $150,000 unlawfully and, as well as the term of imprisonment, faces a three-year ban from working as a judge. A three-year ban from working as a judge. Now call me old-fashioned, a bit of a square from the past. First, shouldn't that be a lifetime ban from acting as a judge? And secondly, wouldn't he still be in prison in any event if he has a 10-year sentence but it's only a three-year ban from being a judge? The other story out of Ukraine concerns the civil trial. I say it's out of Ukraine but it's actually being litigated in the High Court in London. So the other story comes out of Ukraine the civil trial, which makes allegations of corruption on the part of two Ukrainian billionaires, Igor Kolomoisky and Gennady Bogolyobov. Hope those correct. Uh, hope those pronunciations are okay. The allegation is that they removed almost two billion dollars from Ukraine's largest bank, Privat Bank. The trial continues. To the UK now, where the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has been urged to fill the vacant role of anti-corruption adviser. The role has been unfilled since the resignation of John Penrose MP on the 6th of June 2022. Penrose resigned, claiming that he could no longer defend the actions of then Prime Minister Boris Johnson for what was stated to be a clear breach of the ministerial code. Frankly, if Sunak wants to put as much distance between himself and Johnson as possible, especially in light of the excoriating report on Johnson from the Privileges Committee of the Parliament, the UK Parliament this week, then he would do well to make the anti-corruption appointment sooner rather than later. 
Now, a couple of mop-up stories with links to both in the podcast description. First, there's a great little article on the Politico website for anyone keeping abreast of the developments in the story from the EU Parliament, Corruption, which was linked to Qatar. The article looks at where the main 11 individuals linked to the story are now. It's worth a read. Secondly, news of a report from the law firm White and Case, which highlights third-party engagement as a significant anti-corruption risk. As well as the press release with the headlines, I've also linked the report in the podcast description. And finally, on bribery and anti-corruption this week, it's happy birthday to Transparency International. 30 years fighting corruption. You don't look a day over 29. Call me a cynic, but I suspect your retirement prospects are some way off. Now, that's it for bribery and anti-corruption. Now we turn to money laundering. The money laundering news this week is limited, but I do want to mention some interesting stories. First, a report from The Guardian, which reports that older people battling the cost of living crisis have started to act as money mules to supplement their income. Frankly, this is not new, and anyone who listens to this podcast regularly will know this has been an increasing trend over the last 12 to 15 months. As far back as episode 13, I reported on this phenomenon, and in episode 27, I identified research from the Lloyds Banking Group, which noted an increase in the age profile of money mules with an increase of 29% between 2021 and 2022, in over 40s acting as money mules. That increase even then could be traced to the cost of living. Anyway, I've linked the article from this week's Guardian in the podcast description, but it's worth remembering that the harder life is, the easier it is to look for ways to make money tax-free. Frankly, as things worsen, even as mortgage rates are predicted to rise as individuals fall off fixed deals over coming months, I suspect there will be an increase in this trend still further. Watch this space. The second money laundering story this week comes from the Gambling Commission, which has hit another firm, this time Video Slots Limited, with a fine, £2 million, for its anti-money laundering failings. Of course, not just anti-money laundering failings, this was a fine against a gambling company. So it also contains, as they all seem to do, a fine for corporate social responsibility failings. You can look at those aspects in the press release and public statement, which are linked in the podcast description, but insofar as the anti-money laundering failings are concerned, Video Slots, quotes, did not implement its own risk-based processes appropriately due to significant delays in conducting the required action, such as an AML review or request for source of funds following a trigger in its processes. Did not fulfil elements of customer due diligence as early as intended in accordance with its own risk-based approach. It did not have sufficient AML analysts to process the volumes of data or undertake the AML account reviews in accordance with its procedures. The final piece of news is that the UK Financial Intelligence Unit has published the SARS reporter booklet for 2023. Link is in the podcast description. Now, before I end this week's roundup with the trawl through the cyber attack news this week, just a couple of stories which I've put under the general heading of regulatory, because I suppose they could technically be regarded as that. The first is that the UK government has announced that His Majesty's Revenue and Customs will send out letters this month to those individuals and entities named in the Pandora Papers to come clean 
over their tax affairs. Yes, we're still waiting for that to resolve. Link to the information is in the podcast description. Secondly, and something which is very welcome, the UK government has also announced a further amendment to the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill. We looked at the earlier amendment to the Identification Doctrine. They've indicated as well this week that they will seek to limit the use of strategic lawsuits against public participation, so-called SLAP lawsuits, which are often used by rich and powerful, as the press release provides, to intimidate and financially exhaust opponents, threatening them with extreme costs for defending a claim. The link to the announcement is in the podcast description. Now, that's it for that. We turn, as we've started to do of recent months, to the cyber attack news which has been making the headlines. We start this week in Australia, where the government of the Australian Capital Territory has announced it's been affected by the Barracuda Network's announcement in May that noted email vulnerability. Barracuda supports a range of Australian Capital Territory government IT systems and it's thought that some personal information may have been compromised. Sticking with government only this time in the US, First, the US Department of Energy and some other government agencies have been the subject of a global hacking assault exploited by the MoveIt attack, which has been identified variously across the globe, and I'll come back to that again in a moment. Allied to this is the state of Missouri, which has issued an uh, an update on its recent cyber attack following the compromised MoveIt system. It's caused huge problems, this. The public will be provided with more detail once the investigation which is ongoing is completed. Two final pieces of news again from the United States, where John Hopkins University is investigating a cyber attack which has impacted its its systems. The breach was identified on the 31st of May, and it's believed to have impacted the personal and financial information of individuals associated with the institution. And finally, on the news stories that are new this week, I suppose, I I would add, uh, this is a slightly worrying one, but a 2021 cyber attack on the St. Margaret's Health Centre in Illinois is understood to be the reason for the closure of the medical facility. The financial impact of the cyber attack, especially the inability of the institution to submit insurance claims, has compromised the activity of it to such a degree that it's no longer financially viable. In updates to ongoing cyber news, the University of Manchester in the UK has announced that it was the victim of a cyber attack last week. You may remember we covered it. Well, this week it's indicated that following continuing investigations into the attack, that it's likely that the data of individuals associated with the institution have been compromised in the attack. Again, on the MoveIt cyber attack, the Office of Communications, that's Ofcom in the UK, which is the government-approved regulatory and competition authority for the broadcasting, telecommunications and the postal industries, has announced confidential data about the companies which it regulates has been downloaded from its servers. One final bit of news this week. It's from the National Cyber Security Centre in the United Kingdom, which has issued, along with its international partners, recommendations to mitigate the Lockbit Renat ransomware operation. The link to that can be found in the podcast description. Well, that is it for episode 63 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me again, all being well, next Sunday with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.